1 Corinthians 14, we're going to pick up in verse 20. That's where we left off last week. And there's one thing that Paul drives home as we finish up this chapter, and that is that God does all things decently and orderly. Now, the church in Corinth, however, was having a heyday with the gifts of the Spirit. They were not doing all things decently and orderly. They were operating in the gifts in excess, and it wasn't always genuine. It was being done more out of a selfish motive. Their motives were off. They were missing the mark on what the gifts were all to be used for. And so Paul brings some further correction and direction regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit now and how they're to be used in the church. And primarily in chapter 14, he's focusing on a couple of the gifts that were seemingly most abused in the church at Corinth. Those are the gifts of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he's looking to balance these things out within the assembly of the church together. So that's what we're gonna be looking at here. We're gonna see this morning, assigned to unbelievers, verses 20 to 25, a word to believers, verse 26 to 33, and then a word to leaders, verse 34 to 40. So look at what it says right here in verse 20. It says, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Clears mud right there, right? What is Paul getting at? What is he talking about here. Well, what he's saying is these are instructions that he's given to the church that the church in Corinth wasn't probably going to be super excited about because they love to flaunt their spirituality through the gifts. And Paul is looking to bring some regulation to the gifts and to see them operating properly and biblically within the church. He knew that there'd be some people that would be kind of perhaps stomping their feet, going, Paul, I don't like what you're saying, man. This doesn't jive well with me. People are folding their hands and kind of being obstinate like children might be when they're told something they don't like. It's time to go to bed. No, I don't want to go to bed. And they stomp their feet, right? Well, this is kind of what Paul assumes might be the response of some of the people in the church. He says, I want you to be mature in these things of understanding, which is what Paul is seeking to bring to them, some understanding and clarity for them here. Now he says, regarding malice, things that are evil, definitely be children. Be innocent, in other words. That's where the word says, to be innocent of evil, right? So it says, regarding things that are not biblical, right? That are, are not honoring to the Lord, definitely be children, be innocent of those things. But when it comes to being, uh, having teaching and understanding of things in the Bible, he goes, I want you to be strong in those things. I want you to grow. I want you to be mature. I want you to receive what's being said because it's for your help and <clears throat> the benefit of the church. And today we're going to need a lot of strength to understand some of the verses we're going to be looking at here this morning in chapter 14. If you've read ahead, you know we're getting into some difficult stuff here. In fact, we're getting some, not just difficult passages for uh, the book of Corinthians, but some of the more difficult passages in all the New Testament. And we get to tackle that here today. Hallelujah. <laughs> Verse 21 says, now Paul takes him back to the law to say, listen, what I'm instructing to you is Bible-based, ultimately. He says, in the law, it's written, 
with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are a sign or for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So Paul quotes Lucy now from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 and 12. And it says this, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they will not hear. So Paul quotes Lucy from this passage. He doesn't quote the whole thing, but he emphasizes that there will be those speaking with other tongues, other lips, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Now, what's the purpose for quoting this passage here? This passage in Isaiah was being spoken in judgment against Israel. They had forsaken God and the word of the Lord. They had kind of gone their own way. And so Isaiah, the prophet, comes with a, with a word of a prophecy and a word of judgment to the people of Israel to say, listen, if you do not repent, if you do not turn back to the ways of the Lord, there's going to be a, a nation raising up that God will raise up and a nation will come against you in judgment, judgment of the Lord. So when you begin to see in your own streets, Israel, people speaking foreign languages, you're going to know judgment has come just as the word of the Lord has said. And that's exactly what happened, exactly what Isaiah was speaking about happened when God raised up the Assyrians to come against Israel. Suddenly Israel hears foreigners speaking in their streets. The Assyrians began to lay siege to them. And Israel knew, man, the word of the Lord came about just as Isaiah said it would. And it would be a sign of judgment to them that they had forsaken the Lord when they hear foreign tongues. But then Paul, you go, how does that all connect with what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 14? Well, Paul links this account to say that tongues then, notice what he says there in, in verse, right there in verse uh, 22, tongues then are for a sign not to those who believe, but to who? To unbelievers. So if you apply the purpose in Isaiah, then Paul would be meaning that tongues are a sign of judgment to unbelievers. In other words, it reveals that they have not accepted or understood the things of God. When they begin to hear something foreign, they have to realize, well, God must be at work here. I've missed it. I've, I've, I've not been you know, in line with the things of God. Now, even back at Pentecost, right? Acts chapter two, the very um, start of the, the outpouring of the, the Holy Spirit in the church and the birth of the church, the beginning of all these things, when the Spirit was poured out and people began to speak in tongues, the foreigners that were visiting Jerusalem all heard these Galileans speaking in their own native tongues, the places they'd come from. They heard these Galileans speaking in their native tongue and they understood the things of God, or they began to hear the things of God. But, but remember the response. These foreigners there in Acts chapter two, it says that they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So they hear these Galileans speaking, they're going, these Galileans can barely handle their own language well, let alone a foreign language. We hear them speaking in our native tongue, what's going on? Something's at work here. And they, they're perplexed, whatever could this mean? But others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words 
for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, Peter stands up. People are perplexed, hearing the tongues. They're going, what's going on? Something's up here. This is strange. So Peter stands up and he quotes from Joel 2. Now, Joel 2 is a partial fulfillment of what they're seeing. It's not a full fulfillment because Joel 2 explains things that are happening both in the, in the heavens and, and on the earth that haven't happened yet. They're going to happen at a later time. They're going to happen in part to the tribulation and, be, and that, that passage will be fulfilled completely when Christ returns. So it had a partial fulfillment, but then why does Peter use Joel 2 if it's not speaking of Pentecost? Peter's using Joel 2 to prove that when God pours out his spirit on men, on people, miraculous things should be expected. And that's exactly what was happening. God's at work, he's pouring on the spirit and miraculous things are happening. Speaking in tongues, prophesying and the like are evidence that the spirit of God is moving among his people when it's done biblically. So it's just a sign then, it's a sign to unbelievers when these things are taking place that God is at work. But if their hearts remain hard to the work of God, then it becomes a sign of judgment. And notice with the tongues, being spoken at Pentecost, it wasn't the tongues that saved people initially. They're all looking at that going, this is odd, oh, they must be drunk. Peter's like, going, oh, no, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk, wait till at least lunchtime. But no, he says, it's nine o'clock only, it, they're not drunk. The people weren't saved by the tongues, but they were saved when Peter got up and he began to preach a message biblically of understanding. He spoke to them in a language that they primarily knew and that they could understand from and receive and grow by. That's what Paul has been highlighting here in verse Corinthians 14, that we need to focus on the understanding so that all can benefit from what is said and done. Nevertheless, tongues are a sign for unbelievers that something miraculous is taking place. It's an indication of God's presence there before unbelievers. However, too much emphasis on tongues in the gathering of the saints may have an adverse effect on unbelievers. Look at what we see as we read on in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his, hearts, uh, of his heart is revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This is very interesting. See, if an unbeliever comes into the church gathering and everyone is speaking in tongues, what do you think their first impression is gonna be? Well, we see right here, it's gonna be what? That you are out of your mind. People begin to go, what is going on here? I already thought they were kind of not functioning on all cylinders as Christians, but now they're doing this tongues. But what? And they're going to think even more so you are out of your mind. I remember growing up in a Pentecostal church, and we would oftentimes see, uh, you know, tongues in our services. And I remember as a kid thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to invite a friend to the service because they're going to think, man, what are you into, Brent? Like, have you joined a cult or something? Like, this is weird, right? When it's not being done right. Now, notice Paul is saying, 
that when you all come, all, he says, all are speaking. So in other words, he's dealing with the context that not all things are being done orderly. You're all speaking in tongues. Some of you are saying this, some of you are doing that. It's being done in a way where there's no order. And people are gonna look around going, this is insanity. This is not correct, this is not right, it's not good. Prophecy, on the other hand, as a uh, alternative here, Paul's focusing on this in chapter 14, prophecy, on the other hand, offers something understandable because it's speaking forth the word of God. It's revealing truth in a way that all people can accept and receive and understand from. Again, prophecy is primarily, as we saw at the end of verse 22, for believers. It's gonna edify, build them up. It's gonna teach them. It was the teaching tool of this day. But even then, if an unbeliever's in our midst, and here's where Paul's going, even if an unbeliever's in your midst, there's, they're going to hear what's being said and they have an opportunity then to respond to the truth. They're gonna hear what's being said. If it's a tongue and the interpretation of the tongue, if it's a, a, a prophetic word, in other words, just a, a foretelling of God's word, then they're gonna hear. And notice, when truth is understood and comprehensible, what's gonna happen? Well, there's, there's five things that we see happening in this passage here. First of all, they're gonna what? They're gonna be convinced, right? So first of all, they're gonna be convinced. Now, that word, interestingly, is the word, funny enough, it's the word convict. Can you see that? Okay, it's the word convict, even though he says it next, that it's, it's, there's conviction. But this word is, is meaning they're gonna be convicted. They begin to see their flaws and their shortcomings. Sin begins to be revealed to them. And they begin to see where they are apart from God. So they're convinced, they're going, oh, something's up, God's at work, what's happening here? But they're convicted. Secondly, what happens? Well, the word convicted is, is here, but that word actually means judged, okay? So they become judged or it's as though they're being examined, right? As though, uh, you know, a person is questioned by a judge in a court of law, they're being examined, right? So that's that word convicted now. They begin to see, they're convinced, oh, something's off, I'm not right with God. Suddenly they, they experience that judgment, right? They're being convicted. And then thirdly, what happens? Well, the secrets of his heart are revealed. Suddenly they're exposed now and they begin to see who they are again. They're hit with the word of God and they begin to see there's nowhere to hide. It's like that mirror that gets stood up in front of you and you begin to see who you really are. You might've thought, man, I got everything going on today. You show the mirror and suddenly you got like, I still got breakfast on my face, man. My hair's all disheveled. I thought I was doing pretty good. The mirror's just revealed. <laughs> I'm, I'm incorrect in my view of myself, right? Suddenly these guys are exposed and they begin to see who they really are. But then notice here, and this is the great thing that we wanna see happen when unbelievers come together. They're hearing, they're being uh, convicted. There's that kind of judgment where they are being exposed now. But then what happens? They fall down and they worship God. They're humbled and that humility leads to the worship of God. Because once you've seen yourself truly and you've seen God, the only action is to bow down in honor of him and to see your need for him. And then lastly, number five, what happens? They're going to report that God is truly among you. I love that right here. Because now when the gifts 
are operating rightly and the word is going forth prophetically, unbelievers begin to see the only conclusion is that God is at work. This is a supernatural thing going on. God's at work, he's moving, and they can't deny that. I, I've seen people, and, and, and I've heard many pastors share the same kind of stories, is that when we're teaching the word of God, you know, oftentimes we'll have somebody come to us after and say, man, that was exactly what I needed to hear today. How did you know what I was going through this week? How did you know that that's exactly what I needed to hear? Well, aside from, you know, tapping phones, uh, it's just simply the word of God, and we believe and trust that, there's a, a prophetic element or the gift of prophecy where it's just revealing the truth of God's word right where people need to hear it. Not only the gift of teaching, but then the gift of prophecy being shared through the word of God. That's what we desire to see happen. And people get, again, convicted, not only believers, but unbelievers, and they begin to see God's at work here. No, there's no way that that person could know these things or would be saying these things at just the time that I'm here. There's gotta be a God. This is the conclusion. They report that God is truly among you. That's what we desire to see happen here. Is that every Sunday when we gather, every moment we gather that people can leave saying, truly God is among us. And when we allow the spirit to lead and to move and operate in the gifts that gives room for God to do his work and for God to be seen. That's what we desire. But Paul's point is that there needs to be communication with the understanding in these things, right? Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there needs to be communication with the understanding. So we see now a, a sign to unbelievers, but secondly, let's look at a word to believers now as we move into verse 26. Paul says, how is it then, brethren, Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Verse 28, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So the gathering in this Corinthian church I mean, it must have been a sight to behold. Who needs theater? Who needs TV when you can just show up to church in Corinth and just see the sideshow that's going on there, right? Because Paul says, when you come together, man, you got a psalm, you got a, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation, all these things are going on, and it's just kind of been chaos. This is what Paul has been communicating here. Paul's rebuke of them is based on everyone acting selfishly rather than for the good of the body as a whole. People were all wanting to be heard, but they weren't doing it from a heart to serve. It wasn't about edifying one another. And notice Paul says, let all things be done, verse 26, let all things be done for what? Edification. To edify means to build up, to strengthen. So Paul's desires that the church is being strengthened by the operation of the gifts. It's not just about you individually trying to show off your spirituality and functioning in a gift. It's about you strengthening the church and building up the church so that they can grow to maturity, so they can grow and become more like Christ. That's, that's the heart and the motive behind it all. So Paul gives some needed regulations now regarding the operation of the gifts. 
and especially tongues as it seemed again. Like tongues was the main problem that they were having in the Corinthian church, the gift that was ultimately being abused in the church there in Corinth. He says, every person speaking in tongue must do so in turn. You don't just show up and go, let's see who can speak the loudest. Let's see who can speak over everybody else. Let's see who can really rise to the top here. No, not everybody speak at once, but each in turn, one at a time. And if someone is speaking in tongue, don't cut them off. I mean, it's just common sense, right? But this is evidently what was happening in church. Somebody's speaking in tongue, somebody else jumps in, tries to outdo them. Oh, wait, you think that's good? Wait till you get a hold of me here. Hold on a second. And they start speaking in tongue and they start jumping over somebody else. Each one in turn, don't cut someone off. And Paul says, notice this here, let there be, verse 27, two or at the most three each in turn. So within their gathering together, he puts a limit on it. It says at the most, there's going to be three operation of the gift of tongues taking place in the church. Why three? I don't know, but Paul's putting limits on this, saying this isn't going to just continue on, you know, for the next like eight hours type thing, right? This isn't going to be trying to outdo one another. We want to hear from the Lord. That's the point here. And if there's no interpretation of the tongues, then there's to be no more tongues. Let them remain silent, he says. Paul makes that very clear. If there's no interpreter in the service, somebody speaks in tongue, and there's no interpretation, okay. I guess you're not speaking tongue. Nobody else speak out in tongues thinking, well, maybe there was an interpretation for his language, but my language probably be much more interpretable. No, don't, you don't speak out. It, there's no interpreter. You remain silent. You, you have this kind of guideline and regulation on these things. And Paul moves on into prophecy now, much the same. He says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Oh, there's some good stuff here. Much in the same way as tongues were Prophecy is also to be regulated too. And at the most, three were to speak out with this gift and each in turn. And notice this, this word that was being spoken, somebody says, you know, thus saith the Lord or speaks in, a, in a, a, a gift of prophecy, all the others were to judge. In other words, you go, is this accurate? Is this of the Lord? Maybe it was somebody with a gift of discernment that came along and said, yeah, that, that kind of jives with my spirit. That, that seems right. Or for us today, we can go, does this line up with the word of God? Because God will never contradict his word. No matter how much a person might say, oh, this is a new revelation. This is a new word from the Lord. It will never contradict his word. It must always line up with the word of God. But here's the thing. We've seen, and I've seen kind of in, in more recent times, and we've touched on this previously, in the last few weeks, let me do it again. We've seen this kind of move towards the office of prophet and apostle in churches today. People come along saying, I'm a prophet. I'm an apostle. And what they mean by that essentially is I speak forth the word of God and I speak it forth with authority, authority that is not to be questioned. So when I say something, nobody should question it. And in fact, if somebody questions it, well, 
they'll probably be out of the church, man. I can't have people trying to overrule my authority here. And I've seen people kicked out of churches simply because they've questioned the legitimacy of a so-called prophet. But what does the word of God say? Let the others judge. We have the right and the need when somebody speaks forth as a representative of God to judge those things and to say, is this accurate and true and lining up with the word of God? You all need to judge what is being said every Sunday from the pulpit. That freaks me out. <laughs> I have sleepless nights going, man, I got to make sure that this is accurate because you all need to judge it. And that's a good thing. But this so-called office of prophet is no longer for today. That was simply the beginning of the church. God instituted prophets and apostles as the foundation of the church. Yes, there are people that minister in a functioning of, of that gifting of prophecy or in that role of apostle, but it's not with his complete authority. It's an apostle, one that's sent out, I think missionaries today are kind of like the, the new apostles of the day. They are commissioned and sent out with the gospel message. Prophets are those simply that are, are teaching forth God's truth, but it needs to be judged. It, it needs to be balanced out, you see. So, if one person receives a word from the Lord, to share that, um, if, what Paul says is if one person is speaking <laughs> and another person gets a word, well, then that person that's already had the floor needs to kind of sit down and, and, and give way for the person. I don't know how that works. If you kind of interrupt them and say, hold on, I've got a word too. If a person's been kind of holding the floor, then they need to give way for this word to be spoken. That's what the word of God says. So again, how that plays out, that's interesting. But notice something here in verse 32 that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the person being used to the spirit is still in control. The spirit never comes and takes over a person and puts them into some kind of spiritual trance or something and say, I must speak this word and I must interrupt the service and, and get up and speak this word. I have, the, the spirit is moving and I must do, no. Paul says, you're to continue on with the control of your faculties, but we simply yield to the moving of the Spirit. I've heard some people say, oh man, the Spirit just took over and we just kind of, you know. No, we are still to exercise self-control, all right? We're still to see things be done decently and, or and orderly. Sometimes in the church today, we've kind of, you know, seen chaos taking place, not in this church, guys, but in, in other churches that I've seen, you, you've seen kind of chaos take place and all be done in the name of a move of the Spirit. But if it's a genuine move of the Spirit, notice it's going to be done decently and orderly without confusion because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. It's going to be done in a way where it's, it's Christ-like. It's going to reflect Jesus. That's the working of the Spirit. And any time that it doesn't, you have to question, is this really of God? Spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
His God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. All things are to be done orderly. And we need that right now as we get into the next verse. Peace. Peace, everybody. We've seen a sign to unbelievers. We've seen a word to believers. We're going to look at a word to leaders here now. It says in verse 34. Yes. Hi, honey. Love you. <laughs> Love you, baby. <laughs> uh, let your woman keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Underline that, honey, right there. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. It's not my words, guys. <laughs> but listen, a lot of people have read this and thought, man, like is Paul like misogynistic here? Is the church anti-woman? Like, how do you, Braley, what do you think about this? What do you feel about that? No, stop, you're not allowed to speak. That's a failure, <laughs> sorry. That's my niece, she's used to that, but. <clears throat> What is Paul saying here? What are we to learn from this? Listen, it's important that we take these verses in context. Context is everything. Everything that we've been looking at here, Paul has been addressing the gifts in the body of Christ during the assembly together. And the gifts being highlighted here in chapter 14 primarily are the speaking gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, all right? Now, these are oftentimes, again, like I said, sort of the, the teaching tools of the day. Now, remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 13. Just taking my hole a, a bit more. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Again, let me just clarify. This is not an issue of superiority of the man or ability of the man this is simply God's ordained order. God's perfect, well-commanded, ordained order. Which Paul takes us right back to creation to show that this is always the way it's been. This is not something that's being done in, in opposition of culture. This has always been God's ordained order. In the body of Christ, there's equality among the sexes. We can all agree on that. We're all one in Christ. There's neither male nor female. There is absolute equality in the church, but God has established his order and has called the man to be the head. And we see that same order within the Trinity. The son, Jesus, came to do the will of the father. The Holy Spirit comes to testify of Christ. There is equality but there's an order within the Trinity. Now what's interesting is that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse five, Paul did give allowance for women to prophesy. He says there in verse five, but every woman who prophesies or prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So what's right here? Women remain silent, but if a woman prays or prophesies, which one is it, Paul? Is it, how do we balance these scriptures out when he put these scriptures together 
we see that women were indeed permitted to operate in these gifts. But when it came to the public gathering of the church, women were to refrain from taking a position of authority. Remember in verse 29, what did Paul say? He said there in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others do what? Judge. So perhaps Paul is saying, women, you're not to take that place of judging publicly what's being said in the church. You're not to take that place of saying, I don't know if I like that. I don't think that lines up. That doesn't really agree with me. You don't take that place of judging over others in the church. That lines up with what Paul says there in 1 Timothy 2. They're to take that to their husbands or to the pastor or to the elders to address if there's something done improperly or incorrectly. So not to take that position of authority. They were to stay silent. Just as Paul said earlier, even when a person speaks in tongues, there's no interpreter there to do what? They remain silent. He's not saying that that person can never speak in church, but under those circumstances, they're to remain silent. Under these circumstances now, of a woman taking a role of perhaps authority and speaking over men, they're to remain silent. It does not mean that they're never able to speak in church. Can I get an amen from the woman? Amen. You just broke God's word again, okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> It's all good. That's right. You're allowed to speak. It's not that you have to be silent. This has troubled a lot of people. This, is, this has been something a lot of people said, I just can't trust the Bible. Psh, women, to be silent in the church? We'll take it in its context. Look at what Paul is addressing and dealing with. Also, what's interesting is that in the church, uh, going back to the synagogues even, women would sit on one side and the men would sit on the other side. If you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the Western, the Wailing Wall, you'll see there's a woman's section where they can pray before the and then men have their own section. There's, there's division there even today. So it seems that the church, many believe that the church here in Corinth were still operating under that same kind of setup as the synagogue. So women were sitting on one side, men on the other side. So when something was taking place in the service and a word was being spoken that maybe somebody didn't understand, didn't hear, or needed some kind of understanding on it was as though the woman were calling out hey george what that guy say what's he talking about there is that right is that line up should we say something paul says everything's to be done decently and orderly that's not the place to be calling out to your husband in fact what does he say there in verse um in verse 35 if they want to learn something let them ask their own husbands at home in other words don't do it in the in the gathering of one another where it's gonna create disruption because God's not the God of confusion, the God of peace. So rather stay silent, ask your husbands at home. Here's the context and the, and the background for what Paul is addressing. It's not about women not able to speak. They have many areas where they're able to be used and operate in the gifts and minister, no doubt. But Paul simply says, they're not to take that place of teaching and having authority over men. It's plain and simple. And sadly, I'll say, that's an area that I have seen just even very recently. It's been going on for a while, but I've seen this trend growing where churches are really reevaluating their stance on these things and looking to say, 
you know, we need to have women teaching. We need to have women more in, involved, maybe as elders. They're, they're changing bylaws and constitutions. They're reviewing these policies. And I've seen more and more churches moving in this trend who have once held a position biblically. What's changed? Bible hasn't changed. And it seems like there's been now this trend to sort of cave and, and cater to the culture to say, well, we just can't really get away with this any longer. I mean, you know, if people don't see women more involved, then they're not going to want to be here. And it's a trend that I've seen growing and growing, and it's sad. Because we're not to be those that are saying, what does the culture want? We're those to say, what does God want? What does God have for us? What does the word of God say? That's what I want to follow. And let me tell you, Standing up for truth, being biblical is not always going to be popular with the culture. You're never going to win if you're trying to appease culture. We've got something better for them. We've got to give them the truth of God's word and say, if you want to stand upon that which is true, solid, and dependable, you know where to come. You'll find it here. That's what we need to stand on, and that's the position we need to take. Now, husbands, don't think you've got it so good now. And you're like, that's right, honey, I hope you're listening. Because what are the wives called to do? If you need to learn something, go ask your husband. Husbands, are you ready to give the answer to your wives? Do you know the Bible? Are you students and studiers of God's word? Because again, We've seen husbands and men kind of be relegated to this role of just kind of playing the doofus, just kind of putting in his hours at work and coming home and letting the wife sort of call the shots. We see that all the more being promoted in TV and movies. That's not God's way. God calls a man to be the leader of the home, to know the word, and to be able to teach and instruct the family, and to be able to know the word as much or better than your wife to say, hey, here's what the word of God says in this situation. Here's what we want to do. Men, don't leave that for your wives. Some of you are sitting back going, ah, my wife is the one that kind of leads in that area. It's not the way it should be. You're to lead. You're to know the Bible. Get into the word and get the word into you and begin to share that in your home. Share that with your wife. Be ready to give an answer. Paul says in verse 36, or did the word of God come originally from you or was it, only, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or a spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. See, Paul says, if anybody's got a problem with what I'm saying, well, did you originate the word? Did it all come from you? Are you the experts in this? No. Paul says, I'm speaking the commandments of the Lord here. This is from the Lord. This isn't just from me. And certainly the word of the Lord didn't originate from you. So if you've got a problem with this, then you've got a problem with God. Take it up with him. Therefore, brother, verse 39, desire earnestly to prophesy 
and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Again, Paul does not ever attempt to discredit or suppress prophecy and tongues or the gifts of the Spirit, but only to regulate them so that they operate in the right way. When these things are functioning properly and biblically, guess what? It's gonna be done to build up the church, to strengthen the church. It's not gonna look weird. Because if the Holy Spirit is truly moving, guess what the Holy Spirit does? Testifies to Christ. So this is gonna reflect Jesus. It's gonna honor Jesus. It's not gonna be weird. It's not gonna be chaotic. It's gonna be beautiful because it's gonna point people to Jesus. That's the purpose of the gifts, to strengthen the church. So we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and mature in our faith all the more. But notice he says, desire these things. Let all things be done. I don't wanna be a person that limits the moving of the spirit. That says, oh, that's not safe. Oh, that's uncertain. Oh, that's kind of confusing. I don't know, I'd rather just, no. I wanna be open to the moving of the spirit, to the working of the spirit. We need that, my friends. We need him in our lives daily, filling us and empowering us for service to the Lord and to the benefit of the body of Christ. Let us not hold back. Let us say more. Fill us, lead us, use us for your purposes and let it be done decently and orderly so that it will glorify Jesus. All right, worship team, come up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your spirit that you've given us to equip us and strengthen us and that we can operate in a way that builds up one another and glorifies you. And we, we need that, Lord. We, we know that too often the, the flesh gets in the way, selfishness wins out. But I pray today, Lord, for that fresh filling of your spirit here in our lives that you would come and move mightily in us individually, but corporately as we gather together. Lord, we just see the, the gifts of the Spirit in operation, whether it's here in our service or in the foyer or in the parking lot as we minister one to another, Lord. Use us for your purposes and for your glory that we might reflect you and see people be drawn closer to you, Jesus, in all these things. So we pray and we ask, fill us, use us. I pray this in your name, amen.